Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our study, as you can see, is A Better Priesthood. And in looking at uh, A Better Priesthood, we're obviously going to be talking about the priesthood of Christ. I think we all know that we're told that a correct understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. And especially as Adventists, you know, the sanctuary truth and doctrine and associated aspects of it is a foundational pillar for Adventism. And a correct understanding of that is vital. And an assumed or incorrect understanding of that can make the picture a little bit hazy. So hopefully you want to remove whatever haze there is about the picture when it comes to this particular topic. And the whole point, the whole, the active factor and ingredient of the whole sanctuary message is really the priest that's working in the sanctuary. The, the sanctuary is really useless if there is no priest, right? The priest is really the key. He's the heartbeat that makes the whole sanctuary mean something. And that, that uh, so the sanctuary truth is not just about an idea that you believe there is a sanctuary in heaven. It's about a person, the high priest who is working there. That's really the heart of the sanctuary message. And in the scriptures, the entire epistle uh, to the Hebrews deals with this question in great detail. And I wish we could go through the whole book, but we don't have time for that. So we want to pick some highlights to see if we can appreciate this beautiful priesthood, this beautiful ministry of Christ in a, in a way that will just, you know, draw our attention even closer uh, to Him. Almost every single chapter in the book of Hebrews mentions Christ as a priest. It deals with the topic uh, extensively. And there's one particular aspect that we touched on before. I want to explore it a little closer uh, about the priesthood of Christ that seems to be rarely considered when it comes to his priesthood and particularly when it began and therefore what that means to us. So I want to go into a little bit more detail in that. To summarize the whole book of Hebrews, this verse really does it well. In Hebrews 3.1, it says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. This is his whole point of the book. He wants to paint Christ in such a light as a priest so that we might consider him in that beautiful light. And this is really what it means when it says, you know, that the ministration in the sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. When we truly consider Christ for what he really is as our high priest and what that really means for us today. That's the whole point of Paul when he wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. And that's, that's my purpose today as well, is to re reiterate that and emphasize that. Now, the, the priesthood of Christ, the order of the priesthood of Christ was prophesied in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms. Uh, Psalm 110. We'll read verse 1 and verse 10. Uh, verse 4, sorry. Psalm 110, verse 1 and 4. A Psalm of David. It says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This, of course, is a prophecy about the order of priesthood that Christ would be. He would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Of course, who's speaking to him here? It is the Father. When it says the Lord you know, said to him, that's Yahweh in the Hebrew. That's Jehovah. That's the Father speaking to the Son, telling him, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And he makes this promise, this oath. He says, you are a priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. The word priest is only mentioned this once in the entire book of Psalms. That's the only occurrence for the word priest, this particular prophecy. And the entire book of Hebrews deals with the fulfillment of this prophecy. Where Paul takes this, this prophecy and in the whole epistle of Hebrews he says, look, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And when you look at the book of Hebrews in that light, then you really understand what his point is. Very, very significant. But before we go into that, we need to first look at this particular name here, Melchizedek. Because uh, Melchizedek is one of those uh, mysterious, enigmatic characters, right, in the Bible. There's very little said about him, and the little that is said, you know, leaves uh, like this cryptic picture. Melchizedek is only mentioned in the Old Testament twice. This is one occurrence, and the other one is the first time he's mentioned in Genesis. Let's have a look at that. I'll just review it because that's the extent of the details we have about Melchizedek. Genesis 14, verse 17 onward, it says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of, of Kidor Laomer. This is king of Sodom meeting Abraham after he slaughtered these enemies. And uh, of the kings that were with him in the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he gave, them, gave him tithes of all. So this is what we know about Melchizedek. Here and in Psalms, and that's it. Until the next person who mentions it is Paul in the epistle to the Hebrews. And so there's not much that we have, not much information about this particular person. And yet the prophecy says Christ is a priest forever after the order of this person, Melchizedek. uses the name of this man and particularly, of course, his priesthood. Now Paul's description really makes this... Uh, uh, finding the identity of this man really, you know, difficult in a way because his description really gets people thinking about all kinds of ideas. And that's why there's a whole heap of ideas about that. Let's read what Paul says about Melchizedek as well. In Hebrews 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. And it's this particular verse, verse 3, that really has generated all kinds of odd and bizarre ideas as to the identity of Melchizedek. Now I'm sure you've heard some of them. I have heard quite some myself. So we want to see what that means because it'll help us understand a few things about the priesthood of Christ because he's made after that order. Of course, I think, I think everyone knows, I'll mention it just quickly. Melchizedek is, is a, a name that means king of righteousness. Melchi is king, Sedek uh, is righteousness or the righteous king. And he was the king of Salem and Salem means peace. So the righteous king or king of righteousness and king of peace. Very fit description of Christ. That's what Melchizedek means. 
And uh, like I said, uh, some people come up with all kinds of ideas. Some people say, well, this Melchizedek uh, was Christ. He was uh, Christ come as a human for that generation. You heard about that? Okay. Uh, because look at the description. They use this verse. And some other people uh, say, no, 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 that wasn't Christ. It was actually the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. That was the time when he came as a man and uh, was ministering to these people. And then over here, Christ came, the one we are familiar with. Okay, you heard about that one? That's a really popular one. A lot of Trinitarians like that one. As a matter of fact, they can uh, actually produce a reported statement from Mrs. White that says that Melchizedek was the Holy Spirit. You heard about that one? Okay, some have, some haven't. No problem. We'll look at that in a minute. And so... Before we want to find out who he was, we want to eliminate, do a process of elimination, who he was not. Okay, we'll get rid of some ideas and we'll see what we're left with. When it comes to Christ, was Melchizedek Christ? Okay, I think probably some of you might think of a quote where Mrs. White says he wasn't. Uh, the answer is, uh, is clearly no, biblically, of course. Christ only came a man when we know he came as a man, when he was born in Bethlehem. Okay, I'll read you this statement. <coughs> Selected Messages, Book 1. It was Christ that spoke through Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek was not Christ, but he was the voice of God in the world, the representative of the Father. Okay? That's pretty clear, right? Not too hard to figure out. Okay, the, the, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, this is where a lot of people really like it, because to them, they see that as conclusive evidence that the Holy Spirit is another person besides the Father and the Son. Melchizedek. Is that one. Because I think his description in verse 3 of Hebrews 7, you know, without father, without mother, without beginning of days, end of life, that's a description of, of a divine being, some kind of a divine being. And what are your options? Well, maybe the Son or the Holy Spirit. And this is where that idea comes from. And uh, here is an interesting comment about that. And this is from the White Estate. As far as the identity of Melchizedek is concerned, this is what it says. Mrs. White reportedly identified Melchizedek as the Holy Spirit according to the memory of one man. And this is where they produced this uh, conversation or report where Mrs. White uh, uh, was listening to someone preach. And they, uh, and they say, well, actually, she identified to them. She corrected them and told them, look, the Holy Spirit, I'll tell you who Melchizedek is. It's the Holy Spirit. So that's a reported conversation. She didn't write it down. It's a report. And it says here it was according to the memory of one man. That's what it means. There is no support in her writings for this teaching. And the memory statement is offset by denials of others who were present when Ellen White is supposed to have made this statement. She did not identify Melchizedek. And then he refers us to the statement selected messages we just read. See Ellen White's statement in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary where she says Melchizedek was not Christ. Okay, so the reason I said this, that report is obviously not a genuine report that can be relied on. And that, of course, you know, th that, that throws the entire plan of salvation into chaos. You know, what, what's this? You know, one person comes and becomes a human for a little bit of time and another one, what, you know, where, do you, where, where is any of this in the scripture? It's not there. It's just, it's not an idea that, that is true. So it's not Christ. It's not the Holy Spirit. So what are we left with? Well, if we go back to the Bible and read the same verse in another translation, it'll actually clear things up a lot. Here it is from the Syriac or the Peshitta translation. The same verse. It says, Of whom neither his father nor his mother are written in the genealogies, 
nor the commencement of his days, nor the end of his life, but after the likeness of the Son of God, his priesthood remaineth forever. That makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? In other words, Paul is using the fact that there is an absence of record of his birth and the end of his life to illustrate, he's using that to illustrate the eternal priesthood of Christ. You with me? You see, when it talks about all these things, you know, that father or that mother, yeah, that's the explanation there. That's, all these things are in reference to his priesthood. His priesthood is not by genealogy. It's not by inheritance. It's a priesthood that abides forever. Now, if we go back to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5 and verse 1, it tells us something that helps us identify uh, or learn more about Melchizedek. It says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may both uh, offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So according to this verse, we can safely conclude that Melchizedek must have been a man. Well, that's disappointing to some, I know. But he, he was a human being. He had to be a human being. If he was a priest for men, he had to be taken from men. He was a human being who lived in the time of Abraham, who was the king of Salem, which later is Jerusalem, and who was a priest of the Most High God. He was a normal human being like you and me, born of a woman, and he died. And this helps us understand something about the priesthood of Christ. That's a very significant point, actually, as we shall see. Interestingly enough, Jewish tradition actually identifies Melchizedek as Shem, Noah's son. But there's no evidence in the scriptures for that. So all we're left with is just that's a tradition. As far as the scriptures are concerned, it doesn't give us that identity. But that point just helps us realize that the Jews considered him to be a human being, not some kind of a supernatural, you know, nobody knows what it is. It was a human being. He was a king. And Paul uses him as a type. Now, why does, he, was, does Paul use him as a type? Because we have a more extensive type with a lot more information in the priesthood of Aaron with a lot of details. Why does Paul leave Aaron and use this, this Melchizedek that we hardly have any information about? The reason is very simple. There are limitations to the priesthood of Aaron that cannot be used to illustrate the priesthood of Christ. It was an inferior priesthood. It had certain limitations. It had certain things that Paul could not use. So he's, he's using what's available and says, well, this part here, Melchizedek fits as a type. And Aaron does fit a type, as a type as well in other things. But I want to look uh, briefly here at some of the limitations of the Aaronic priesthood. And it's these limitations of the Aaronic priesthood that required a better priest to come. So I want us to keep that in mind as well. Here's, here's an example. Uh, Hebrews 7, 19 and 20. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God, and inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. So according to this, the law that was given, particularly the law that dealt with the dealing with the people's sins, which was all under the Aaronic priesthood and all these aspects, it says it did what? It made nothing perfect. That's a very big limitation, right? 
It did not make anything perfect. Here's another aspect of that limitation. Hebrews 7.23, And they truly, speaking about the priests there, and they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of, of death. In the Aaronic priesthood, the priest just kept dying, and then you have to find another high priest. And then he dies, and you have to have another, find another high priest. So that, Paul is saying, this, this, is, this is a limitation here. You don't have a priest that abides forever in that priesthood. The priests kept dying, and you had to replace them. And then a little later on he says, a little more in Hebrews 9, verse 9 and 10. He says, which was a figure, speaking about the priesthood and the tabernacle and that whole system, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. Paul here says a few things. He says that whole system, the priesthood, the sanctuary, sacrifices and all that, it was a figure for the time then present. What's a figure mean? Illustration. Illustration. It's not the reality, right? It was, a, it was a type. Thank you. It was a type. It was a figure. It was an illustration. It was a model. All these aspects. It says that would continue. It was imposed on them until what? The time of Reformation. What's that talking about? Christ. That's very good. That's not Martin Luther, okay? Not the Reformation in, in, the, in the, you know, during the Dark Ages and all that. This is the Reformation, the time when Christ would come. So God instituted this system and it would remain in place until Christ should come. But that system, while it remained in place, could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Because it was only a figure. Right? You can't go ride a model car and go shopping. You put it on your shelf. It looks like a car. <laughs> okay, but it's not a real car. It's a figure. This was a figure. And so it could not cleanse the conscience of the believer that came there. So this was a limitation of the ironic priesthood. Until something real would come at the time of reformation. That's not a term we use a lot to refer to the coming of Christ, the time of Reformation. That's what, that's what Paul says here. He, he says in a number of places, Hebrews 10.4, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. It was only a figure. Uh, verse 11, And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Now some of us say, yeah, well, well, we knew all that. But Paul is using all these limitations to illustrate how much better what we have now is. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 7, it tells us something really interesting. Hebrews 7, 27, speaking about the high priest again and uh, the priests in the Aaronic uh, period. He says, who needeth, referring to Christ, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people, for this he did once when he offered up himself. You see, there were certain uh, ceremonies, particularly the one Paul is referring to here is the Day of Atonement. In the Day of Atonement, there was a very interesting ritual or cer ceremony that the priest had to perform before he could qualify as the priest for the people. He had to go in and offer a sacrifice for himself and his people or at his house. 
and he had to go into the most holy and then come out, then he is ready to intercede on the behalf of everyone else. Then he would perform the duties of the days, Day of Atonement, which we're more familiar with. Now, if you look in Leviticus 16, you'll see that order. And Paul is using that example. He's saying, look, Christ does not even need to do that. To do that. He doesn't need to go in and cleanse himself and his house and come out. Christ did all that once by the sacrifice that he offered. Here is a limited priesthood and here is a superior priesthood. And so there are a number of aspects that Paul brings out in this particular letter. The one we looked at earlier, I want us to keep in the back of our mind because it's a, it's a point that uh, makes all the difference as far as Christ being a priest. And that is that every priest ordained for men is taken from among men. If you want to have a, a high priest for human beings, he has to first be a human being. You don't take an angel and put it as a priest for human beings. Okay? It doesn't, you cannot do that. And that's why Melchizedek could not be any other species or any other creature or any other being other than human. In the same way, Christ as high priest can only be a priest if he is human. If he wants to be a priest for humans. Because a priest is taken from among men. This is why he had to be a brother to us, an next of kin to us, our elder brother, the second Adam, the seed of the woman, the son of man. All these things are the background of what qualifies him to be a priest. You see, there are three very distinct offices of Christ. He is prophet and priest and king. Right? You're familiar with that? In that order. And these three offices, they don't overlap. They are consecutive. They're not uh, simultaneous at the same time. They don't run at the same time. They are consecutive. He is first prophet, which is as a human being. Then he becomes priest. And when that's finished, he becomes king. That one doesn't end. Praise God. He stays king forever. And it's interesting, someone made this comment to me yesterday that at the end of each one of his offices, Christ actually says, it is finished. When Christ finished his role as a prophet on earth, he said, it is finished. When Christ finishes his work as a high priest, he will say, it is finished, which is the close of probation. He that is holy, let him be holy still, and he that is not. You're familiar with that? So that, that, that's a very interesting point. Moses prophesied about that. Deuteronomy 18.15, he said, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. That's a prophecy about Christ. It refers to him as a prophet, and it refers to him as of thy brethren. He will come as a man, and he will speak the words of God. And of course, we all know the verse, the word was made what? Flesh. That's a fulfillment of this prophecy, and dwelt among us. And Jesus, when he was here on earth, he said, the words that I speak unto you, they're not my words. They are the words of who? The Father that gave me. This is him carrying out the fulfillment of this prophecy as prophet. What is that? What's a prophet mean? The mouthpiece of God, right? The messenger of God, the mouthpiece of God. That's why it says the word was made flesh. Now he is the word as a human being. He always was. You know, the word was in the beginning. But now the word took on flesh. Now he is a human being for the very first time. It had never happened before. And that is why 
he has he is qualified to do this work. Hebrews 2.17 Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. That's why he had to be a man. How can he sympathize and empathize with what men and women, of course, with what humans go through if he is not one of us. Amen. Now, like I said, you might be saying, well, yeah, we, we, we all know that. I'm not saying anything new here, but I want us to see this in contrast to what was available before. We don't really appreciate and understand the role and the work of Christ as our high priest because we have certain assumed beliefs that are not really accurate as far as the evidence goes. I'm going to come to that in a little bit. I touched on it briefly yesterday, but I want to put that contrast very clearly. Not only did he have to be a man, but he had to go through a certain experience as a man in order to become a faithful high priest. Hebrews 2.18 For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Praise God. Amen. He suffered being tempted and tried and he overcame every time, time after time. And it's for this reason that he is able to succor or help or encourage or strengthen those that are tempted. That's why we have a sympathetic high priest. That's why Christ could not be a priest before he went through this experience. Otherwise, how can he succor those that are tempted if he was never tempted. How could he even be a priest for human beings if he is not yet a human being? So his suffering and his temptation and his victory make him a compassionate high priest. And obviously he could only be tempted like us if he was one of us. Hebrews 5.2, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. When did that happen? When he took on humanity. Who are the ignorant? That's all of us, right? And those that are out of the way to bring us back to the full. He can do that with great power now because he is compassed with infirmity. He has the baggage that we have as a high priest. This was a momentous event, brothers and sisters, in, in, the, in the life of the Son of God, in the history of the universe. A very momentous event when Christ would take on something permanently without being able to revert back to what he was before. He was going to take on humanity, not just wear humanity outside as a cloak like he appeared to Abraham in the Old Testament. He was going to become linked with humanity intrinsically in his very being, a process that would remain permanent for him for the rest of the eternal ages just for you and me we cannot underestimate the significance of him becoming flesh praise the Lord and so this is why we're saying that all through the period of the time before the cross the time before Christ became a man there was no high priest in the sanctuary in heaven there could not be a high priest because Christ was not yet a man. He was not tempted. He did not overcome. 
And it's for this reason that God instituted this earthly priesthood, which is inferior and has many limitations. But it was as a figure and as a type of the superior priesthood that would one day come. And particularly the type that Paul notes is, of course, Melchizedek, who was kind of somewhere at the beginning here. And during this whole period, of course, before the cross, what people based their faith and exercised their faith in was the promise that God gave. And the promise was apparent through all these different types and services and, and ceremonies and all the different promises that were given through the prophets and all of that. People believed these promises and based on their faith in these promises, God dealt with them and saved them. We saw yesterday, he took even three of them to heaven. And so don't underestimate the promise because some people think, well, you know, all they had was a promise, you know, just a promise. Brothers and sisters, this is not just a promise. This is the promise of God who speaks and it is done. That, that's, a, that's, that's a big thing. People got to heaven based on the strength of that promise. So, so don't think it's just a promise because sometimes there is a tendency to think, oh, well, you know, if they had a promise, maybe, maybe they had something more real, maybe... Maybe the sacrifices of Aaron and that priesthood had something real in it. Paul tells us in Hebrews, it could not do anything when it came to sin. It was only a figure. The real was still coming <clears throat> when Christ would become a man, when he would become a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So for the majority of the history of the earth, there was no high priest in the sanctuary above. Now, I realize this can be a hard saying for some people. That's why I want to go through it a little bit more in detail and just slowly so we can grasp a hold of it. Because, brothers and sisters, if we do, all of a sudden we will appreciate like never before what it means that now, in this period of Earth's history after the cross, now we have something that people never had before. The best thing that people living in this period had before the cross, the best thing they had was an earthly priesthood. We're living in a time period when what we have is a heavenly divine priesthood. You see the difference? Let's look at a few other verses. We covered a little bit of this yesterday. I just want to go a little bit more in detail. Hebrews 8.3 For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. Not only, not only does a priest have to be a human, not only does he have to be tempted and tried like we are, but he also has to have something to offer. When did Christ have something to offer? When he came and died. What does he offer? Himself or his life or his spirit. Exactly. Thank you. And when he offers his spirit and his life, his life comes to us enriched with all the experiences of victory that he obtained. He did not obtain these victories before, you know, in the Old Testament time. He obtained them when he was here on earth. And now, Paul says, now he, he must have something to offer, otherwise he cannot be a priest. And only now when he has something to offer can he operate and function and work as a priest. That's why a couple of verses later he says, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established 
upon better promises. So this is when Christ on the cross, while he was on earth, on earth, that's when he obtained this better ministry. That's when he had ob obtained something to offer. And now he can work and function as our heavenly high priest. Now, you know, when this dawned on me, I, I was in shock. I, I, I find it a bit hard to, to, to swallow. I thought, what? All these people, they didn't have that? I thought he was a priest forever. I thought that he was working in heaven while Aaron was working on earth all this time. So if, if, you, if you thought that, okay, you're not the only one. That's how I thought at one point as well. But when I realized, oh, hold on a minute. No, they didn't have that. We have that. I was like, wow. All of a sudden, I really appreciated. I have a high priest in heaven. I don't need to go through an earthly priesthood. And that's why the earthly priesthood ended when the heavenly started. God says, okay, we don't need that anymore. Now you can come directly to the Son. He is a human being. Praise God. Praise God for that. When David uh, said the prophecy that we looked at in Psalm 110, it says, The Father said to the Son, Sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That was the oath. When did Christ sit on the right hand of God? Okay. When he went back, well, someone said, well, he always, he always was on the right hand of the Father. True. Maybe I should qualify the question. When did Christ sit on the right hand of God as a man? After this, which is why everyone said, let's, let's see what Hebrews says. The beginning of the book of Hebrews, this is where Paul starts. And he sets the whole scene for the book. He says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. For the very first time, we have a human being sitting on the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen. You realize that? Never happened before. And Paul uses this as his, the introduction of his book. And he says, This is why we now have this better high priest. You guys are still looking at the ironic priesthood and you're still looking at the sanctuary. Look up. We have now someone sitting at the right hand of God. And so his sitting on the right hand of God is associated with his priesthood because that's what the prophecy was in David. Chapter 8, verse 1. Notice how they're both linked. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum, the conclusion of what we're trying to say. This is what Paul's saying. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He says, this is the whole point. What I'm trying to get across to you people is this. Now we have this high priest who is set on the right hand of the majesty in, on, in the heavens. A human being. Now, when I say human being, I don't mean he's only a human being. I think we all realize that. Okay, he's, he's a divine. He's the divine son of God, but he is now also a human being. For the very first time, that had never happened before. Chapter 10, verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for his sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. That's the prophecy that David said. Remember? In other words, sitting on the right hand of God is equivalent to him becoming a high priest. Because the high priest had to be a human being. Let that sink into your mind a little bit. For the first time in the whole history of the universe, of all the creatures and orders of creation that God has in his vast universe, we have 
our own type, a human being, sitting on the throne with God. Nobody else in the whole universe has that. And that only happened after Christ went back to heaven. Do we really realize what we have? And we're joint heirs. Thank you. Exactly. So I, I'm really, you know, praying that uh, I can stir our minds. The Lord, the Spirit, can, can lift our minds heavenward and catch a picture, a vision, where Paul says, Brothers, I really want you to consider Christ the high priest and apostle of our profession. We too often are caught up in all these earthly things. And just like the Jews did, you know, after Christ died and the, the veil was rent, and everybody saw there was no Ark of the Covenant in there. So they must say, quick, quick, get all those priests, tie up the curtains so nobody, and they kept on going. It was an empty form. We have the reality right now. Amen. Something they never had. This, this is, this is mind-blowing. Anyway, let's, let's keep going. Hebrews 12, that's why he says again, same thing, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God, our high priest. You do not really appreciate the impact of the epistle to the Hebrews if you don't realize that Christ only became a high priest after he finished uh, his work on earth. Generally, the assumption is, and, and it's, it's in a sense a valid assumption, because the priesthood of Christ is so important, well, we assume it must have always been there, right? Because we have it now, and, and maybe subconsciously we project that reality on all time. And so it might come as a surprise when we say, hold on a minute, he wasn't a priest back then. He only became a priest 2,000 years ago. And that's the whole impact of the epistle to the Hebrews so like I said, you know, when that hit me, I, I had this light bulb moment, okay? I had this, wow. Okay, so hopefully we're going to have a few light bulbs go off today here as well. I want to look at, uh, at a particular prophecy that we're familiar with. <clears throat> and this prophecy in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord, even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be, excuse me, a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Okay, how many are familiar with this verse? If you've had anything to do with the Godhead or the Trinity, this is one of those verses that you like to keep handy in your memory because of that last part especially, right? The council of peace shall be between them both. And we say, there you go. That's the father and the son. Two, not three. Case closed. Very true. Okay. But I want us to think about that for a minute. First of all, there are two persons spoken of in this prophecy. First one is the Lord. We know who that is. That's the father, Yahweh. The other one is the branch. We know who that is. That is Christ. Okay. Isaiah 11, a number of places where he's referred to as the branch. The word shall is used in this prophecy seven times in two verses. What does the word shall indicate or mean? Future, right? Future. Okay, I want you to think that we go step by step here and think about that. In other words, as far as Zechariah was concerned, this whole prophecy is speaking of a future event or events that was yet to happen.
Correct? That did not yet happen at his time. If we substitute the names and the pronouns, maybe it'll make uh, a little bit more impact. I'll just read it to you with that substituted. And the son shall build the temple of the father, and the son shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon the father's throne, and the son shall be a priest upon the father's throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. What does that remind you of? What we just read in Hebrews, right? Sitting on the right hand of God and becoming a high priest. In other words, at the time of Zechariah, which was not long before the close of the Old Testament canon, as far as Zechariah was concerned, Christ was not yet a priest. He was still going to be a priest, right? Can we all see that? I'm not, I'm not twisting any scripture. I'm not reading anything into it. Zechariah is saying the branch, when he comes one day, he will be a priest. He will do all these things. He will bear the glory. He will build the temple of the Lord. He will be a priest and he will sit on the right hand of God. Hebrews is the fulfillment of that. And the kingdom of grace and, and a whole heap of other things. That's exactly right. Christ is set down on the right hand of God. Then someone might ask a question. Hold on, brother. You're really upsetting the cart here. This is an important verse for us. We use this verse to talk about the council between the Father and the Son planning uh, the plan of salvation. You know? If we stick to the context, it also tells us that the council of peace is what? Past or future? Right? The council of peace shall be between them both, the Father and the Son. Well, what does that mean? It was a future event. When, when did the council of peace become between the Father and the Son? It's when all these other aspects of the prophecy are fulfilled. If you follow it through in, in the context, when all these things happen, that's when the council of peace is between the Father and the Son. Let me put it to you this way. There is no question that the Father and the Son talked together and discussed things about the plan of salvation at the very beginning. They discussed the terms and the conditions for the plan of salvation. Those terms and conditions were not fulfilled until Christ came and accomplished them. And when He accomplished them, then that council that was discussed was ratified and enforced and came into power. You with me? And so obviously, when Christ was on the cross, He was speaking to the Father when He said, It is finished. He was referring to all these discussions that they would have had in the beginning. Now it is real. Now it is fulfilled. Now it is active. Now as a human being, He goes to heaven. He sits on the right hand of God. He is a priest for His people. And the council of peace is between them both. And because it's between them both in its fulfillment, we obviously infer that it was discussed between them both in its planning. You with me? But we miss the point of the prophecy when we think it's only talking about the past. It's talking about this glorious event that the book of Hebrews is dealing with. That even Zechariah was looking forward to. Let me throw in some statements here because sometimes people don't like to accept something except if they see a quote. That's a bit of a problem, but we'll get to that some other time. But I'll put some quotes because they are there. But we just read it in Zechariah. The work of Christ as man's intercessor is presented in that beautiful prophecy of Zechariah concerning him. And she quotes Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. His work as what? Intercessor. Here's another one. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And in the ministration, in the sanctuary above, the council of peace shall be between them both. 
And that's from Great Controversy. I think most people have read that book here. So it's a, that's a pretty standard work. Okay, so it's very clear, right? It's a beautiful, beautiful prophecy. And this is where we see that beautiful event. When Pentecost happened on earth, it was indicative of something that had happened in heaven. When Christ poured out His Spirit on earth, it was a visible token and manifestation that at that very time in heaven, He had officially become the high priest of His people. In other words, He was anointed as the high priest of His people. I think we did a study on that here one time too. Yeah, out in that building. So that's on DVD as well, we can, where we can go into detail about that if you'd like to look at it. But in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, it talks about that. It says, But unto the Son, the Father is speaking, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Again, this is in the first chapter of Hebrews. You see, the first chapter of Hebrews sets the scene. He says, Christ has accomplished salvation. He's gone, he sat down on the right hand of God, and he is anointed as our high priest. And then he goes through the book and he shows the fulfillment. And then he shows the superiority of the priesthood of Christ over any other priesthood. And he says, please look at Jesus in this light. Please consider him as we should. He is the anointed high priest. This was the glorification of the Son of God as our high priest. And this is where the council of peace is between them both. I never really thought of the council of peace as between them both here until I looked at that verse properly and in detail, right? And, and we skim over verses, we pick the points we like, and okay, it's very important to uh, incorporate the context. I'm guilty of that sometimes too, so obviously I learned my lesson. And you know, in the process, we miss so many beautiful gems. That's the thing. We miss so many beautiful gems that Christ has the superior work. And it tells us, you know, He lived daily. He makes intercession for the people according to the will of God. He is holy. He is harmless. He is undefiled. He is separate from sinners. He is higher than the heavens. He is doing this work so powerfully that the devil, the book of Revelation says, is angry because he knows he has a short time. That's what angered Satan. You realize that? He lost his place in heaven. Now Christ is there, He's fulfilled the council of peace, and He's ministering for His people. There is power living on this side of the cross, brothers and sisters. Amen. Power that is not theoretical. Power that is real. It needs to be real in our lives. I hope maybe if we see what the picture that Paul is trying to paint, it can encourage and strengthen our faith to claim that power. In Hebrews 9.8, it tells us, the Holy Ghost, this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as yet the first tabernacle was yet standing. I think this verse is, is of incredible significance. Because it takes us back to the time of the first tabernacle when it was standing. That's during the whole period of before the cross, or up to the cross. That's when the first tabernacle was standing, right? It tells us that the way into the holiest was not yet made manifest, so long as the first tabernacle was standing. What does manifest mean? In other words, it's hidden, right? It's hidden. No one can find it, right? In other words, the people living under the Aaronic priesthood had no access to the heavenly sanctuary. 
the way there was not manifest. So long as this earthly priesthood was standing. Why, well, going there would not really get anything because there is no high priest. That's why it says the way there was not manifest. It was not revealed so long as it was standing. The best that they had was this earthly priesthood. And so long as that earthly priesthood was standing, there was no access into the heaven. Now, the reason why I'm, I'm going over this in, in painful detail, perhaps, is because I realize it, it, it might be a serious shift in, in our thinking. You know, that's, that's a pretty serious claim. This, this young man is saying, what's this, no high priest in heaven for 4,000 years? That's crazy. I realize that, that there is, you know, that thinking. Because, we, like I said, we believe the administration is so important. And we assume that it's always been there. And that's the only evidence for it. Our assumption. If Christ was always priest in heaven, all through during this period, the book of Hebrews has no punchline. The book of Hebrews means nothing. Absolutely nothing. Paul is saying, well, we know all that. Thank you. Yeah. What, 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 what are you saying that we didn't know, Paul? He always was there. Thank you. But Paul is saying, now, now he obtained a better ministry. Now we have a high priest who is set on the right hand of God. Look to him. He's a human being like you and me. He's tempted. He's tried. He's able to succor you. That's the whole point of it. That's the whole thrust of it. I want to mention something so as not to confuse people. We talk about the priesthood of Christ. And people say, well, hold on. No, he had to be a priest because he's a mediator. And we always had a mediator. And that is true. We always had a mediator. Christ is the mediator between God and man. Always, from the beginning, even before sin, He's the mediator. But we never had a human mediator until He came as a man. Okay? So when I say He wasn't a priest in the Old Testament, I'm not saying there was no mediator. He was the divine Son of God, the Word of God, the go-between. But He was not as a, a human being in that capacity. And therefore, He was not a high priest for human beings. When he became a man, he is now a mediator as a man, and he is a high priest. I think we all know the verse. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God, the man, Christ Jesus. Now he is a man. Now he mediates as a man for the first time. That's the point of his priesthood. So I, I just want us to see the distinction here so, so you don't... Stone me as a heretic, okay? He's working as a man for men. Paul in the book of Galatians talks about the time when faith should come. When the seed would come, he says when the seed would come, that's when the faith would come. And in the book of Hebrews, he tells us that uh, Christ was made perfect and he became the author of eternal salvation. And that's where in the book of Hebrews, of course, it refers to him as the author and finisher of our faith. And that's where he calls upon us uh, to look upon him. He authored and finished our faith as a man. Because it's a faith for men and on the behalf of men. There is great significance in Christ taking on humanity. So much more than we even think or imagine. You know, I think when we, sit in, when we get to the kingdom and we sit at Christ's feet, we'll be weeping as it hits us, the implications of what it means for him to have become a man and what that cost him for eternity. 
You know, the Son of God, ever since He became the incarnate uh, human being, He is not the same as He was before. His existence as a man is an inferior form of existence than His existence as the divine Son of God. You realize that? And He's going to have that forever. That's not an external shell. That's not something that He's put on. That is something that mysteriously and intrinsically is tied to His very being. And He's going to have that forever. Just so you and me can get to the kingdom. And He's bearing that as our high priest. And that's why Paul says, look, look at what we have now. We have what all these people in the Old Testament looked forward to and hoped for and dreamed about. And now we have it. It's a living reality for us. Do we really realize what we have? If we did, we'd be jumping up and down and might be accused as Pentecostals. Who knows? <laughs> you know, as, as Adventists, we have this uh, solid reserve of not expressing our... Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. They dreamed about this. Abraham, Moses, Enoch, Daniel, name your favorite Bible character, your favorite Old Testament hero. They dreamed about this. We have something now that they did not have. Wow. We have this high priest. That's why the servant of the Lord tells us, listen, the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. It's the heartbeat of our experience. It's the seal of the defeat of Satan and the victory of Christ. And he ministers to you that which he achieved on earth, his very own life. He says, here, take it. Now you have it. We need to pray and ask the Lord to forgive us for our blindness. We really do. And to open our eyes, to anoint our eyes so we can really see Jesus as we all. This is really the challenge uh, of this study. This is really the challenge. It, it's really, you know, impacted me in a great way. And I'm hoping that somehow I can pass that along to you. And that as we gain an understanding and as our faith grasps a hold of that, we can rise to the place where God wants us to be. God is long. He's been waiting for 2,000 years for people on earth to get it. The last generation will get it. And the 144,000 will be produced. We can be one of them. That's my challenge, and that's my appeal. We don't have to go through any human being to get to Christ right now. We don't have to go through an intercessor. We don't have to go through an, an earthly priest. We don't have to go through anyone. We go direct to the Son of God. That's why, amen, that's why Paul says, we enter with what? Boldness. We now have a human being, same as us, in the, on the throne of God. First time ever. Brothers and sisters, grab a hold of that. I pray that the Spirit will really make it real in your experience and my experience. That's what the sanctuary truth means. It's not arguing about whether there's a building in heaven or not. Okay? It's a reality of understanding that right now we have this living high priest. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.